Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Town Hall, our newest open panel discussion podcast about tackling the internal issues preventing progress within the Black community. I'm your host and moderator, Brianna Rhodes, and today we'll, we will be discussing classism in the Black community. Before we begin, allow me to introduce my lovely panel of guests. Dr. Marguerite Henricks, PhD. Dr. Lucretia Taylor, PhD. Tiffany Rosier. Brandon Hull. Skylar Caesar. Victor Sandifer. Thank you all so much for being available for this discussion. We have a lot to tackle during this episode, so I'm going to jump right on in. So as I said, we were discussing, we will be discussing classism in the Black community. And I want to just start off by asking you all, how has classism in the African-American community influenced our political, social, and economic climate? Does anyone have any thoughts? I'll start. You know, I think that uh, historically, classism from a political perspective um, has led to what we now recognize as gatekeeping in uh, the African-American political landscape. I think that politically and historically, African-American leaders have been selected from what we recognize as a historical talented 10. And uh, the things that come with that in terms of passing down um, opportunities to lead in a political framework has really led to what we now see as gatekeeping uh, because we've seen our uh, Black political landscape be highly ineffective um, and continue to fail us collectively as a community. And so I think that associates itself with classism in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about like the talented 10th, like you know that was something prominent in the early 20th um, century. How do you think like the modernized version of it plays out now? Well, I'm sure our panelists have thoughts. Um, so if you want to hop in on it, please do. Yeah. Uh, so when I think of uh, classism, I think too um, a, a lot about uh, where people live, where black people live in particular. Um, and I think that um, there was always a goal. I grew up on the South side of Chicago and a lot of people, the goal was, oh, um, you've made it or you, you're now successful if you make it out of the hood. Um, and I think that the issue with that is that when some black people, when they do leave um, these impoverished areas, uh, they kind of leave that experience behind. And so those people that are kind of stuck in that area um, are just gonna continue to, um, you know, lack those resources or proximity to you know education or different things like that so it's kind of like a perpetual uh, movement and uh, a lot of black people who do make it uh don't really go back and um help other people in those communities just in my opinion i mean obviously there are people that do um but just like on a wide scale um i don't really see that happening a lot so those are my thoughts okay I would say um, to answer like the second question, I think the new talented 10th talented is um, black celebrity. 
I think that's a new talented tip is, is, is being a celebrity. And for some reason that affords people the opportunity to be able to say and have, I guess, uh, an opinion on everything that has to do with black people. And even if they're not even educated or have certain kind of knowledge about certain experiences, when they're asking questions about what's happening, what's the plight of our communities, they go to celebrities who may not still be in touch with it or may have a totally different experience as the majority of black folks. So I think they use the, the talented attempt of a celebrity as a way to um, keep the majority of the interests of black people um, at the forefront. Mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely right. You see it in fraternities and sororities, celebrities pretending to be in fraternities and sororities. You see it in the Jack and Jills. You see it in uh, organizations that cater to educated Black Black Americans. So the New Talented Tenth, if it isn't in an organized or institutional fashion, right, you're educated you're in a Jack and Jill or, or fraternity or sorority, then you're a celebrity and you have the instant um, expertise. Mm -hmm. It's outrageous. There's actually a book called uh, Our Kind of People, and it was written by uh, Lawrence Otis Graham, and he uh, also wrote the um, the famous uh, D9 book, um, but it really tackles uh, classism among Black people, and I think it focused particularly in the um, DMV area. I think, Bree, you said that yeah. you're in that area now. Mm -hmm. um, it's particularly in Washington, D.C., that um, those classes were established, you know, um, antebellum, you know, almost immediately. So uh, um, when I think about those kind of things too, um, you do play with classism. I think that colorism does also kind of tie into it as well too, because uh, you have people who are uh, lighter skinned who were afforded more privilege because of their proximity to whiteness. And that can also uh, play a part into classism and being afforded different opportunities as well. Adding on to that, I think that people like naturally like to separate themselves. I think it's just human nature, whether it be in the black community or any other community. So whether that be with um, what type of black elite you could be. So maybe that means you've reached your staff from being a celebrity or being in the entertainment industry, or maybe that means you achieved your status in life from education or having generational, um, I don't know, generational legacy passed down. So I do think it's important to think about when we're talking about these subjects, like when we're talking about higher class people, which ones are we talking about? Because I think it does make a difference. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> One thing I want to add is, you know, I think youth are the pulse of our nation. And so when we're having these conversations, what are what are our youth hearing? What are they then learning? How are they then experiencing life? And then what comes 10, 20 years when they become of adults and they then have to participate in these types of conversations. And so, you know, when I just think about my personal journeys or those of my peers, accumulating wealth means something very different nowadays than it did 50 years ago. And so just because you've moved out of the hood, you may not own your home and be renting in a different area. And so I think we have to look and see what we define as being middle-class. There's lower middle-class, there's upper middle-class. I mean, really what group of people are we talking about? What does it actually mean nowadays? I mean, it's so difficult to just survive, you know, even with an education that how, how do we define, you know, middle-class and upper middle-class and, and, and being of 
this, you know, higher, higher, higher class. Well, how would you all personally define that? Like upper middle class, middle class, and lower middle class, um, lower class in this this time right now? Well, I don't think we do enough of looking at actual data at our collective group. I think we look at social media images, um, traditional media images, and the images around us, and we make our own emotional decisions. I think, however, if you look at the data around Black wealth um, and, and classes of Black folks, you'll be highly disappointed to learn that there aren't very many. Mm -hmm. And um, that's probably why there's a cognitive dissonance around Black classism and actual Black life in America. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'd refer to like Federal Reserve data, local data in your community around um, Black um, demographics and economics, and that will paint an actual picture versus, you know, sometimes what's presented to us. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Taylor, you touched on how, you know, everything is like rooted in the youth. How do you think the youth is kind of molded into like classism as we get older? Like what kind of experience do you think shape how they see, you know, our community or how they see classism in general as they age? Well, I think we were talking about celebrities kind of being the face of the black political movement. And mm -hmm. so if you use, you know, Kanye West as, you know, the leader of the black community voice, you're gonna have a lot of confused young people, you know, walking through this world thinking that he is the voice and that what he's saying is right because the culture, the rap culture is so strong. And these are the icons that our young people are looking up to and feeding into, honestly. And there's no one to really, you know, go against what Kanye West is saying that really inspires our young people to, to go a different route. So unfortunately, the voices that are loud are the ones that I think provide misrepresentation and misinformation about what really the plight is of the Black community. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we're mainly talking about like the entertain entertainment industry right now, but do you all believe like there there is classism like within different industries, like how people gatekeep to make sure that they're the only one at, that has a seat at the table? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that there's classism in literally any industry, even when you think about, I guess, corporate jobs, or you think about working in um, more professional settings, there's levels to things. So whether that be your, I don't know, at the bottom as someone who's more of like a service worker, you're someone who is focused on like customer service, then you get into like tech, and then you get into executives. And I think once again, it goes along with the fact that people just love to divide themselves. They may say, okay, we're all in this boat together. We've all made it to this point in our lives to this type of industry, but I'm still here and you're still down there. And I think it's just like a human nature thing and it's very unfortunate. Mm -hmm. I wanna say something on the opposite end in that, you know, I did go to a historically black college and know what it's like to be in an environment where you are um, brought in, where the space is created for you, where you feel like you belong. And I've had the good fortune of being in environments and connecting with people that have my best interests and that will mentor and teach and pull up. So I don't have a similar experience in that, you know, and I think in those, I think those space, those spaces exist. And we have to continue to push that narrative that those spaces exist and it's not a, a crab barrel, you know, when it comes to black folks succeeding. You know, every black person I've ever worked with 
let me take that back. Every leader, black person in leadership that I've ever worked with has always been open to developing and helping to support my growth in a professional way. Um, and so that hasn't been my experience. It does it does it exist? I'm sure it does. But I think we really should be pushing the narrative that we are a community and Black folks help one another in professional settings. And there's enough out here for everybody to win. Yeah, no, well, I definitely agree with that point, for sure. No, definitely. I've noticed the division and seen some problems with it, but I would agree with you that more often than not, folks are willing to help. It's just, I think sometimes naturally people divide themselves, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. I think, think it depends. Oh, go ahead. no, go on. Go. I think it depends on um, the kind of environment um, overall. Um, so when we were talking about corporate America, we know that um, there are a lot of Caucasian people that are in that environment. So it really depends on if the black person um, is uh, desiring that proximity to uh, or they equate whiteness with success. Um, I worked as a server uh, when I was in undergrad and my uh, general manager of the whole store, he was uh, a young black man and uh, he looked out for us and he helped us a lot. But when we, we would get visits from corporate, it would kind of, um, you could see the code switch. Um, and it was definitely um, because, you know, as a young black man, I felt like it was a it was a white owned uh, restaurant, um, and you could see that they were kind of pressuring or they were on him. And I think it was because he was young, and because he was black. So as a result, um, I would also say that I think that black leadership, when it comes to that, that they tend to be harder uh, on um, other black people because they want to see that push. They want to see that success and they don't want uh, to see you be associated with those negative stereotypes that come with, you know, African-Americans, especially um, in the workplace. I, I think for me, um, I, I, I try to find my, I just, I'll say this. I, I, while I'm not, I identify a lot with a lot of the teachings of the nation of Islam. And I think that a lot of times, um, when we get to the, like when we're gatekeepers, we're gatekeeping for, or when we are part of certain institutions that are historically white, um, we have to do those things. I don't, I don't think code switching is a bad thing. I think we should code switch and you do that regardless in your life, regardless of the times. But I would like for us at one point in time in life to start building our own institutions and building our own institutions where we can create the culture. Like um, Dr. Taylor was talking about, like she was in an environment where the culture wasn't all about me trying to beat you out because it's only a couple spots for us. Because if you have a big, a very big institution and only one or two spots are going to be for black people, of course, you're going to breed um, this competition. So that's just like with sports, right? Or like entertainment, they give us 50 slots, but have 3 million people going for 50 slots. Do you not think some people are going to kill and stab and, and do whatever it takes to be able to get one of those 50 slots, even if you didn't like if you grew up not eating and you're hungry and this is the difference between you eating or not, you're probably going to do whatever it takes to try to survive. But I think when we create our own institutions, when we're hiring each other, when we're creating spaces for ourselves that we're able to uh, take away some of these, um, I guess some of the environments that makes it so we do do the things that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. I like that, uh, the idea of creating black spaces. Um, I'm, I'm a very, very, very big supporter of creating black spaces. Um, I think black spaces though should remain black. 
Um, and that might be a little controversial. And I think that uh, a lot of times I think black people are, are really inclusive, but I don't think we get that same energy um, when it comes to us entering other spaces. And I'm, I find myself very frustrated at times uh, about that. So I'm a very big proponent of gatekeeping. I don't invite anybody to the cookout. Um, <laughs> I don't. Um, but that's just how I am. And I think that um, in order to truly be successful, we do have to gatekeep and, you know, have certain spaces. I mean, not, not every space, but there should be a certain safe space just for Black people. We don't have to extend the olive branch. We don't have to open up the doors for everybody. Like, mm -hmm. it's okay. It's okay. I that to your point, Brandon. Like the the podcast I host, I've had people reach out to me and ask me to interview people, interview women who aren't black, and it's always an unequivocal no. Uh, like there are plenty of places for non-black women to be interviewed about food and other things, so that's a no. Um, this is specifically for us, so I gatekeep the hell out of that podcast. Um, but and you know, to everyone's point, like I I rarely have like hard opinions on these things because human nature flexes so much and you know our environments change and conditions change and so our behavior changes so my 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 question actually is is how do you all define classism and then how does that how does the global existence of classism affect how classism works within the black community because classism across the world looks very different some mm -hmm. of it is religious some of it is a belief a whole ass belief system hey we believe in classism because you're born into a certain space and this is how you're supposed to serve your community or serve your nation or serve your people so there's an honor to it that is unique to specific countries and specific cultures and so because classism for black people in the united states is an offshoot of systemic racism and a lot of other things, it is not seen in a global context because it has a very specific behavior and effect on us. So I'm, I would be interested to hear what everyone, what, what you define classism as, and then like, where are you seeing it in your own kind of personal experience at this point? I mean, I would definitely d define it, you know, for us in, in Black America, at least classism is kind of a presentation um, and an association with wealth. And because many of us don't have wealth, the way that we're present, it's presented to us creates an angst and an anxiety and kind of like a pressure to perform. So you have scammers in the community and you have all of these fake opportunities to get rich and all these passion product projects and motivational coaches and multi-level marketing schemes. They're all scams. But when you have uh, movements like Black Women in Luxury or Blacks in Luxury or, or you know, um, you can't sit with us or all of these presentations of wealth, um, the reality is uh, we don't have access to those things in real life. Um, and because we don't do the political work that's necessary to get access um, and we're shamed for being owed uh, reparations, for instance, um, we just continue to uh, struggle kind of like in this good times kind of, you know, um, you know, vibe where we're just really struggling and surviving still. And it's kind of like, ain't we lucky we got them still in 2022. So I define it as, you know, association, proximity to wealth. And, you know, that is presented in a way that, you know, defines your home and your car and your holidays and your vacations. And, um, you know, that's what it is for us in Black America, I'd say. And I would just add, just to add to it, I would say in that single-handedly um, is what has corrupted the, the Black interests. Mm -hmm. 
like the majority of black interests because everyone's striving for this idea of what we see as success. And it takes away from the interest of the collective. It's all about kind of the individual. And as you become higher and higher up, you start believing that, you, as my grandma said, you start smelling your own piss and you start to believe that you are greater than you are. And so I'm an exceptional person and I'm less than, I'm different than these kind of folks. And it starts to breathe that, it breathes that when you have like, so when we talk about the earlier questions, like that's what, that's what it breathes for me. That's what it, I see it in my daily life is folks constantly trying to strive to have this proximity to wealth. And once they get it, it's like leave everybody else behind or take a select few. And it's just interesting that the majority don't get their needs met. So when we think about the movements that were happening um, last year in 2020, when all uh, police brutality was continuously happening, um, there was a time where black folks was like, yo, I don't care, we burning shit down. Anytime something happened, we gonna burn that shit down. We're burning shit down. And then they started getting our celebrity leaders on TV to beg us not to do it and to start kicking money to us for like one month. And we all was quiet and then we kept going with life. But the life of black people still became shitty. And I thought that was one of the one times in my life where I feel like if we had kept our foot on the gas that we could have really made some change because mm -hmm. America doesn't hear anything until you start messing up their money. You're absolutely right. But I do want to say that, you know, out of that movement, we saw that a lot of people siphoned millions and billions of dollars out of black America. But out of that movement, there was a small group of people that got some work done. And I think that that's, again, because we're not grounded in any political work anymore. We're not aware. So a lot of black folks don't know that AB 3121 exists. California now has a law on the books that requires them to study and pay reparations to American descendants of slavery. But because we're not tuned in on a political level. Folks are not seeing that work. So we have to kind of spread the word and get folks plugged into the real work that's happening because that's what's gonna liberate us and get us to the class that we want when we have the restorative justice and the economic repair to deal with our own communities or go where we want to go in peace, right? And so we have to do the political work to create policy that allows us to buy houses without discrimination. Go to school, you know, being traumatized and terrorized, right? And, and get jobs without being discriminated against. And that requires law and policy. We aren't free yet, right? And so folks are doing work, but that work is not highlighted for some reason. Yeah. It's amazing. And Dr. Heinrichs, I agree tenfold. And I think another layer to that is the personal um, healing. Like we are first generation out of poverty. We are still suffering from the mental abuse that comes with living in poverty. And so some of the things that you were talking about, Victor, is like, I understand and I get it. How do you expect someone who's new to money, even just a little bit, to really be conscious about the, the community? Someone has to be teaching that we have to bring it back. And like you said, there's not enough focus on the political measures and what's happening in the communities for folks. I'm just trying to live day by day. If I'm bogged down by my cousin and my mom who still live in poverty, I'm never gonna get anywhere and I can't achieve the level of you know wealth that I am looking to attain. And it shouldn't, it shouldn't, we shouldn't be embarrassed by that. Like I'm looking to be rich, okay? <laughs> but I also understand that there is a level of, um, you know, commitment that I have to have to my community and not everyone feels that way. So my question is then how do we, you know, collectively come together and, and push that narrative that we have to come back and we have to take care of us and this is how you do it. Who's teaching that? I think that, I'm sorry, you can go. Oh. I think it starts in the home. 
Uh, I, I know that when uh, I turned uh, 17, um, I definitely got that, uh, okay, so what are you about to do? Like, you have to get out the house kind of kind of thing. Um, and I think that a lot of uh, Black youth in particular um, may hear that narrative, um, like, okay, you're on your own when you're 18. Like, I'm like, you know, parenting, like, I'm, I'm done, you know, and... Uh, you know, I, I mean, I went off to college. Um, I didn't finish school initially and I had to go in the military and I went back and finished school because I wasn't honestly prepared. Um, and in retrospect, I went back and I talked to my parents. And so my, I have a younger sister who's in her mid twenties and she is still at home. And it's because I had that conversation and I said, Hey, you know, like as parents, like, you know, we're not always ready, especially because we don't in school, we don't learn about finances or, right. you know, things like that. You know, that that's left to parents. And uh, as uh, I think, as Dr. Taylor said, uh, we're the first generation that's out of poverty. So those conversations not, might not necessarily always happen. So it's kind of like we when we were 18, we're kind of kicked out and we got to figure it out for ourselves. And I feel like if there is a little bit more nurturing, um, in the house, in the household, then it will put more younger black people on the track uh, for success. One of my coworkers is, I think, 26, and she has always lived with her parents, but she is about to buy a house now because she has saved her money and, you know, she didn't have to pay rent or right. you know, do anything like that. So I think it starts in the household. Like we have to uh, break certain mindsets of like, oh, you need to go do this. But, you know, when my grandparents' generation, they had to be out the house by that time because they were starting families. They had to work, you know. Right. So we have to break those different cycles, um, I think, and eventually it'll be better, hopefully. I was going to say the the idea that um, there's, a, there's, of course, layers to it. I think classism is just kind of the result of the mechanism and not necessarily the actual problem itself. Right. And like, we have been taught that generational trauma is how we're supposed to get along. So we traumatize the next generation and we kind of repeat. But again, I think that's one of those kind of dark diabolical angles of, of systemic racism and, and one of those heritages from slavery that we don't really recognize. I mean, because we're gonna be honest, the new type of health and wealth right now is mental health and getting yes. out of those cycles of trauma and getting out of those places where, you know, most again, most country like unfortunately, Black America is so siloed that we don't really think about what the rest of the world is even doing. So globally, most people stay with their families until they get they start their own family, and then they just move down the street or you know move into the place next to them, or they all kind of layer up and live in one house together because this idea that you need to break off on your own and this sense of individualism. Um, you know, away from the community that could support you is so celebrated in Black America, but I don't think that's our natural instinct. I think our natural instinct is to take care of each other um, and to and to take it, and to pass that care down to one another. But we, if we are conditioned to not do that, then we continue to go. Like my mom did the same thing as four of us, and when we were building up and gearing up to be eighteen, she was like, "I hope y'all ready to leave." And so it's this almost a sense of take pride in the fact that you're able to survive on your own and opposed to take pride in the fact that we're able to thrive in community. And yeah. so, but most play, most countries around the world, most most cultures around the world, they thrive in community. It's just a natural, your, your grandparents die in the house that you was raised in and then you take over the house and take care of your parents. It's just a natural part of life. It's not something 
unique, special, or anything to be ashamed of, that you lived in the same house that your grandparents passed on in. It's part of like, how do you, how are you supposed to live in the world if you're expending all of your money trying to figure out how to get your life off the ground? Mm-hmm. So I think part of that classism idea is to condition people that you have to do this by yourself. Mm-hmm. And we celebrate people when they kind of, you made it on your own by yourself. And it's just like, so we keep perpetuating this idea that part of your, part of your success is the fact that you did it on an island in a silo. And that's just not, it's actually just a false narrative. It's not true. You didn't make it by yourself. Yeah. And Victor, I want you to pick up because I know that you were about to say something. Is there something that you want to share before we close everything out? Oh, I, I would just I would just add to it is that um, the only way any of us becomes rich in this country, in this society today is by exploitation. So the only way you have anybody that's super rich, wealthy, with any kind of level of wealth, they had to have exploited somebody. We can connect those chains by that in any kind of way. So I, I really think, honestly, and this has even been entrepreneur that in some ways we have to figure out a new system outside of capitalism to operate with inside because it sets up everything that everybody's talking about. It sets up and breeds like this competition, this pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of ideology. And I think that we have to go to like a more cooperative economics type of um, system where ownership isn't just by a person or individual, but by the collective, because there's no way any of us can own land because it was here before we got here. It's going to be here when we leave here. But somewhere in Europe, they created this thing where they marked up geographically. This was mine and this is yours. And it made everybody else start doing the same. So I think in some ways we have to figure out how to change uh, capitalism and the system we work and operate inside or operate outside of that system so that we can have more people look like us, um, have a level of opportunity to get life, liberty, and in the pursuit of happiness. Yes, most definitely. Well, I want to say um, this is a great way to end this episode. And I want to thank you all for your input. I'm sorry we couldn't get to, you know, other um, comments and everything, but I think this is a great way to round this out. So I want to thank you to our guests and thank you all for joining us for this episode of the Town Hall of the Polaris Network. Hope you all have a great evening. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you for having us.